you like Grant Fisher, I told him I'd give this shout out, but he just came out with a new podcast called The Half Step Pod. He's doing it with a former teammate of his, Connor Lane, and a really good listen behind the scenes action of what it's like to be a professional. Another episode of the Half Step Pod. I am your co-host Connor Lane, and across from me, back to the usual swing of things, I've got my co-host Grant Fisher. Grant, how are you, man? Uh, I'm doing really well. Um, this is actually the last episode I'll record in Park City uh, because this weekend I'm flying out to Honolulu, and then I'll be going to Japan after that, and then back to Portland. So I won't be in Park City at altitude for the rest of the year, which um kind of weird this feels like kind of like home now in a weird way just because we've been here for three and a half months but um yeah doing well excited to to get this this journey onward um and uh yeah got got some good things to look forward to i'm still so jealous of the hawaii thing i mean it's <laughs> going to be training and whatnot i got a lot of questions I maybe you address this are you going to be at altitude in hawaii or is it just like purely a staging area it's it's more of a staging area. It kind of serves a few purposes. Um, first purpose would be we're getting closer to Japan, um, breaking up the the long flight from the U.S. to Japan and kind of cutting it in half, basically. Um, getting closer to the time zone is another aspect. Um, getting into humidity is another aspect. Um, and uh, I guess those are the only aspects. We will not be those at altitude. Some good um, yeah, some, some quality aspects right there. Um, we will not be at altitude. I'm pretty sure on most of the islands to get to altitude, you just have to go up the volcanoes. Um, and you can get to significant altitude. I'm pretty sure Haleakala is around 10,000 feet. Um, but there isn't much living up there. Like you, you, There's not really towns on top of the volcano. Uh, I'm sure you can imagine why. Um, and there's not great places to run either. So we're staying in Honolulu. Um, I mean, essentially as close to sea level as you can be. We're uh, uh, on Waikiki, um, yeah, a couple hundred meters from the ocean. So uh, that's sea level if, if I've ever heard of it. So I'm excited, can breathe better down there. Um, it'll be hot, it'll be humid. It'll be good, good prep getting over, uh, just moving further west towards Tokyo. Well, growing up in North Carolina, what you hear all the time is that humidity is the poor man's altitude. So you'll still have a little bit of a, that kind of positive adversity to face. I also, okay, thinking about it, if you spent the week before the Olympic Games sleeping in a tent on top of a volcano, I feel like that would be pretty badass. It'd be a great storyline. Uh, I don't know if that'd be great for training, though. <laughs> Storylines, yeah, though? I, I don't know how well I'd be sleeping. No, yeah, that's true. Okay, well, I'm glad I'm glad we're not doing the volcano thing, even though it it would be pretty sick. It, it would it would be cool. Um, probably not the best prep though. Also, I'd be kind of nervous about the volcano part. You know, you don't they know? Don't they have like a like? There's like rumbles. I guess that's earthquakes. I no, they can they can. Like, I, when was the last time like you don't? They don't have any warning before the volcano, uh, in a place like Hawaii at least. I don't know. I feel like they probably know. Yeah, I, I would hope they know, especially, you know, I wouldn't say we're that much safer on the beach either. It's not like there's anywhere to go uh, in the in the circumstance where the volcano erupts, you know, mm. like you're kind of on an island still, unless you swim into the water. 
Yeah, you got to get into the water immediately. That's yeah. another advantage of sea level, actually. So there you go. I, I feel like you probably won't get engulfed in, in volcanic lava while you're in Hawaii and probably make it to Japan. Um, that would for, be for ideal. These, for these couple of races here. What... Tell me about tell me about your your last week now at altitude. How how was that spent? We saw a bunch of Instagrams us us fans of Grant Fisher. Uh, <laughs> there was an Instagram story of you jumping into a pool. There was an Instagram story of you getting dinner with your friends. It felt very much like summer camp. And uh, I just I at, from a neutral from a bystander perspective, it felt like the boys were just vibing at summer camp. And I wanted to know is that do you have like a summer camp type feeling right now? I mean, I know it's a work it's a work trip still, but. Things seem like they're a little bit looser in like a good way. Yeah. Um, you know, going into the trials, that was a very high pressure meet, kind of a make or break thing. Uh, you either make the team or you don't. Um, now everyone that is still at altitude, all of us have made our respective teams. Uh, so we're all going to Tokyo, which is a good feeling. Yeah, we're just enjoying our time up here. Training is still very hard. Um yeah, I, I, we've, we've had some complaints from the group that, that the taper has not begun uh, from our coach. But yeah, training's still quite tough. We're still doing reps at 5K pace, 3K pace, 10K pace, 1500 pace, you know, Can stuff too. Can you walk to, us through like Tuesday's workout? Like not like exact, but like approximate. Yeah, so Tuesday I would consider like a, a race-specific workout. Um we were running about 3K. We were starting at 5K pace and cutting down to about 3K pace. So for the guys that are up here, that's about 63 seconds per lap, cutting down to about 60 seconds per lap. And we were running uh, 1200s in there, 800s, 400s, uh, kind of bouncing around, doing a ladder, um, and then closing off pretty strong in a, in a 1200. So that was good race simulation. Um, that definitely gets you breathing hard. There's been a bit of smoke up here, so we had to go indoors. There's a 454-meter track up here uh, that goes around a speed skating arena that was used for the 2002 Winter Olympic Games out here in Salt Lake. I've seen pictures of that track. I always ask Alec if he's raced there, and he always says, yeah, I have, man. And I'm always <laughs> like, was it the coolest thing that's ever happened? And he, he didn't, he's not as enthralled by it, but I think that's <laughs> sick. I think that spot is awesome. Yeah, it's it's a really cool spot. It came in handy just because the, the air quality was pretty bad up here for a few days. Yeah, it's a little weird. You know, splits are a little off. It's hard to really tell where you are in a rep because... That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> back, great. Back, back to the mindset <laughs> thing. That's exactly what we need right now. A yeah. couple weeks out from the Olympic Games. <laughs> just like, you don't want to know where you're at in your rep, man. <laughs> Yeah, so we were kind of, you know, pacing was a little hard to zero in on, but it was a fun track, a fun session. Um, it was really cold in there because of the ice uh, mm. that they have to keep. So it was probably 50 degrees, which was kind of a welcome change too, because it's been about 90 to 100 here every day. Um, wow. So hopefully that didn't screw up our heat acclimation, uh, <laughs> that that one workout. But There's so many uh, variables. we got the altitude acclimation, the heat <laughs> acclimation, the time zone acclimation. Yeah, I think so, it's all gonna work itself out. <laughs> hopefully, yeah, um, yeah. So that was a very good workout, um, hard workout. Um, I think we got in like six or seven k worth of work, um, and then yeah, we'll have a workout again tomorrow on Friday. Um, but yeah, overall training is still quite intense. We're still um, pretty much running full volume as far as mileage goes. Uh, we'll start to cut that back when we're in Hawaii leading up to the games. Yeah, as of right now, that's that's what we're doing. We're still grinding. Um, the I think it was, I think it was on Friday that everyone was 
just just in a good mood we finished off our run at this gym that has a pool in it usually we don't go in the pool unless someone's like aqua jogging or swimming but it was nice out we were like hey let's jump in the pool so we were splashing around having fun just hanging out it was really you know quite nice just just some dudes being dudes yeah dudes being dudes for sure guys being dudes sorry i messed that up yeah (laughs) we're gonna leave it in yeah so the last thing before we get into what we're going to be focusing on most of today, the, another race flashback that we're doing. Um, how long are you in Hawaii again? I'm in Hawaii for a week, um, okay. exactly a week. And then I'll be in Japan for two weeks, uh, just about, and then back to Portland. So um, yeah, on the road for the next three weeks. Nice. Leaving home. Of, yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Which isn't even really home. Leaving temporary home. But eventually, at the end, I'll, I'll be back in actual home base, which is Portland. So that'll be nice. I haven't been back there in a while. Going to have to kick um, everyone out of your apartment. I know. I know. I wonder how many people are living there now. <laughs> I, I've given the keys to a variety of people. So who, who knows who's living there right now? It's, it's kind of a no rule situation. They fight it out. <laughs> it's whoever, whoever's in the apartment, that, that's whose it is. It's squatters, right? It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully you get it back. Um, <laughs> All right, but moving into kind of what we wanted to focus on today with the Olympics coming up and whatnot, I actually, I was Googling this. I don't know what we are and aren't allowed to say. Like, with with the event in Tokyo happening soon, just because of, like, studio rights and everything. Um, but but with, with the games coming up, we wanted to do specific flashbacks to other Olympic championship performances uh, in advance of your Olympic championship performances. So we got a lot of good wrecks. Uh, one that we almost did was Dave Waddle's race uh, in 19, was it 1972? Um, I think it was. I'm going to so. go with that. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry, guys. Uh, winning the 800 uh, at the Olympics. That one is a super famous race. Uh, we might still hit it later, but there's actually already great analysis of him talking about that race uh, on YouTube that you can, you can Google and find. And uh, I think we kind of were like, don't know what we can really add to, to his own analysis of, of the situation. So we, uh, we instead went with the 2004 Olympic final uh, in the men's 1500 meters, which uh, is the really tight finish between El Garouge and Bernard Lagat. Um, it's Higgum El Garouge's kind of last quest to win an Olympic gold medal, which is crazy because he had been to two previous Olympics and been the favorite or arguably the favorite in both of those. And, uh, and he'd lost both of them. So he, he comes into the Athens Olympics in 2004. I think he's 30 or 31. He ends up retiring at the end of that year or the following year. So this truly is his last shot. And he's, you know, I don't even know if it's, he's got to be the greatest 1500 meter or miler right in, in history. Uh, maybe not, I guess you could say like, Oh, Bannister was greater because of the barrier he broke, but El Garouge has the world record uh, in the mile. He has the 1500 meter record of 326.00. The mile world record is 343.13. And he won four world championship golds and was just very dominant in his era. Grant, I don't know what you think about El Garouge on the kind of all time lists, but uh, he certainly was the top dog for this entire era and still hadn't won that gold medal. Yeah, absolutely the top dog. I, I'd say he's the greatest miler of all time. Um, I, I wouldn't say that's that's up to debate too much. I read a stat once that he lost four races in the span of eight years, um, which is absolutely ridiculous. If, and two if of those had to have been the Olympic finals of 96 yeah, yeah. and 2000, which is crazy. 
Yeah, 96, I mean, you know, gets tripped. We'll get into that. We'll yeah, okay, that. okay. Yeah. But yeah, he'd say, I, he's, my, he's my goat, like my miler all-time goat. I mean, the guy was dominant. Uh, he the the Olympic gold eluded him for quite some time, but um, four world world championship golds in a row. I mean, that's the the consistency that you need for that. Just the ability to race at the highest level without, you know, the inevitable injuries that come up, the inevitable down years, the the things that come on with aging in the mile. Um, you know, you need to have that quick burst of speed, and you know, you don't really see guys that have that for eight to ten straight years. Um, and he was able to do that. So, uh, certainly my goat in the mile. So he, he kind of, he bursts onto the scene in 1995, uh, where he, as a 20 year old, where he comes second in the 1500, uh, at worlds that year. And he had been, I mean, he was talented, but he'd been a relatively unknown quantity before that point. And then you move right into the 1996 Atlanta Olympics which is his first Olympic Games, and he's arguably the favorite. He's he's certainly expected to challenge Morshelli, who had been, what, like the world record holder and had won Worlds three times going into that final. The Atlanta final, I, I encourage everyone to Google it. It's super famous because going into the Bell Lap, El Garouche gets knocked up, like knocked around, trips, and just falls uh, right at the Bell. And, you know, of any sort of tactical 1500, like you're not you're not coming back from a fall, especially not a 400 to go, and he finishes last in the final, which, you know, he's a 21 year old. You maybe wouldn't think it would be that big of a deal, but actually, I read an article. Uh, let me, I want to get it right. Which article? Okay, I read an article that was written in September of 2000 after the Sydney Olympics, but uh, by Duncan Mackey in uh, what is this? In the Guardian, uh, in the UK Guardian. But it was a quote from the 96 final where they asked El Garouge like what it felt like to get tripped up in that race and lose. And he says about the 96 final, it was the end of the world. Every day I think of what happened. And then he says, the memories have made me strong like steel. Which is pretty freaking bad. <laughs> it's, it's pretty badass. But yeah, um, the rumor, or I guess like the, the story is he carried a picture of that like final from 96 around with him all the time in training for the 2000 Olympics at Sydney. So 96, he's maybe not the complete favorite. He gets tripped up. It's not really his fault. 2000 though. I don't know if, if you looked at 2000 at all or want to jump in at any point with this, but 2000 is really his race. He, he had won worlds in, uh, what years did he win worlds? And he won worlds in 97. He won worlds in 99 in the 1500. Um, 2000 is really supposed to be like, okay, he's definitely going to win gold here. He, he's crushing it at this point. He's he's the favorite in everything. Um, like th there's no debate that he isn't the favorite going into this race. Um, 1500s a marquee event, one of the most anticipated events in the entire Olympics. Not only track, but just overall. Um, I'd say only the men's hundred ho holds a candle to like the the magnitude uh, at the at the Olympics for track and field. Okay, so just, just wanting to get everything right. In 2000, in Sydney, he is, uh, I want to say he's in the lead going into the last lap. He's, he's neck and neck in the last lap, and then he gets outkicked by the Kenyan, Noah Ngeni, in the final few meters. Ngeni runs 332-0. It broke the Olympic record. El Garouge lost by like two tenths. It was a heartbreaking miss. Yeah, so it eludes him again. Uh, he's been the, f 
I, I don't know if he was necessarily the favorite in 96, but he certainly had a shot at winning and probably should have won in 96. It eludes him then. It eludes him um, again in 2000, uh, this time just just getting beat in a like incredible race. If you haven't watched the 2000 race, that's another incredible one to watch. Just just a, a great last lap, last 100. And yeah, it eludes him again. Unfortunately, in our sport, the, the biggest event is the Olympics, and you only get a shot every four years. And there's there's a great line that one of the announcers in, in a broadcast for the 2004 Olympics says that that Elgar Rouge at that point was the greatest never saying like he was the greatest never to win gold, um, which is not a title that you want. Like, it's great that you're the greatest, but that hangs over but your head. Never you know, it, it's 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 quite yeah. the shot right there. But yeah, carry on. You, you were you were crushing the analysis. No, I didn't. You probably have more about the 2000 race then than even I do. I just reading this article, it says after he loses, he goes, he sits on a bench near the track and just cries for 10 minutes while the Moroccan team doctors and the coaches and Bernard Lagat and no one any of the other two medalists in the race come over to him and try to console him. And he just sits there and cries. And it's just, it's so, it's so raw. I mean, I feel like these days you rarely see that kind of like people know to almost cover themselves more in that moment or go behind the bleachers or just like not let it all come out right there. You know, I hesitate to be like, so you can see how much that means to him. Cause there are a lot of people who don't necessarily just cry right there on the track and <laughs> it still means a hell of a lot to him. But at the same time, it is such a just raw and just vulnerable place that he puts himself in. And like you said, losing two races or four races over like what that six or eight year period and two of them being the two Olympic finals is crazy and like i was saying he wins gold against these guys you know in 97 in 99 in 2001 and 2003 so he wins four world championship gold medals in this span and loses the olympic golds in 96 and 2000 i I love what the announcer said what you quoted greatest never if he didn't win in 2004 he had he may have had the mile world record the 1500 meter world record if he doesn't get an olympic gold medal he definitely is not unquestionably the greatest miler ever right i feel like that's that's pretty clear yeah i agree i mean it's crazy what you said they he's beaten all these guys routinely at the world championships it just seems that at the olympic games it just didn't all come together in 96 he got tripped you know you can't really control that in 2000 he got beat by a a very talented runner um but it's it's crazy in our sport sometimes you know you you have to win like he got second in 2000, and that was devastating. You're second in the world. You're you're the second best at the Olympics. You have a, a silver medal, but that clearly in his mind was failure. Um, so it's crazy the standards that this guy was living up to, um, and and that only added to the pressure going into 2004. Yeah. Um, let me see if I have. I don't think I have anything else going into the actual race. Um, I we encourage everyone to check out the. Uh, the race video, I found one that's just titled 1500M Final 2004 Olympics uh, from Clank 99. There was a couple others I saw, <laughs> Clank with a K, 99. Uh, it has 430,000 views, so it's it's relatively uh, respectable. There were a couple others that had like weirdly dubbed music over it or like were not the full length video. So just just search around until you find it. I don't know. Did you? I don't know about the one that you found. Yeah, there, there's so many videos of this race. One has, um, it's I think it's one of the most viewed ones. It has the the Gladiator uh, <laughs> song from the movie Gladiator, where uh, I, I think I think it's the scene right at the end where he's like flashing back to 
when he was like at home with his kids and his wife and he's like feeling the grass with his hand and it, it's this slow song i think that is like layered over okay, i was trying um, to figure out what that it, it makes it it makes it incredibly dramatic <laughs> um but any any race video will do um before we get into the actual race uh i was i didn't even know some of this stuff i was looking through some of the results from the from the prelim and the semi and there were actually some big names that got eliminated rashid ramsey who went on to win uh i think i think it was double gold in 2005 in the 800 and 1500 wow. Um, and then famously went on in Beijing and tested positive and was DQ'd in the 1500. So that guy was in this race. Um, that was a pretty big band just because he was such a big name um, back then. Most people probably, I guess, I, I don't remember when that happened because I wasn't really in the sport, but um, definitely heard about that one once I paid attention more. Uh, Nick Willis was also eliminated in, in the semi. Uh, Kevin Sullivan was eliminated. Nick Willis first guy out. Um, was- yeah. Yeah. So, so some big names are eliminated. I, I don't think Alan Webb even made it out of the prelim. No. I believe he was eliminated in the prelim. So some very good athletes were eliminated before we even get to the starting line of the final, in which uh, I was reading something. I never knew this. Apparently there was a false start, and they had to call, call the race back in the, in the final. So kind of uncommon for the 1500. A lot of but, nerves. A lot, a lot uh, of nerves on the line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly it's the Olympic finals. So... Yeah, that, that's all I have for the lead-up. You got anything else? Not on the lead-up, no. Just just going into the race, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. One of the, the feed I was watching, so race goes off, it, it starts out pretty slow off the gate, and immediately the announcers are talking about like team tactics between nations. Um, like The last thing they say before the race starts is talking about talking about the other Moroccan in the field, uh, Adil Kauch, like how he has sacrificed his position at championship races before to help pace. And then when the race goes out slowly, they're talking about how, oh, maybe the Kenyans are conspiring to do something or, or like all three of them are there. I don't know how that plays like today where I don't think that there's like, if you're in the Olympic final, maybe you're working with your teammates in the sense like, hey, you guys have like maybe know a little bit about each other's strategies or, you know, you might not like be completely cutthroat with them in the first half of it. But I don't know if you're going to get any examples like that of teammates in the Olympic final just like sacrificing their race on the line. The announcers seem to make it sound like, oh, maybe the pacemaker got stuck in the back. It's like there really isn't an actual pacemaker for the Olympic final. They were just, I think, expecting like the other Moroccan or one of the Ethiopians to get up there in the front and pacemake it for the championship contenders, which I thought was weird. I mean, I don't know a ton about track and field like races in that era. It could have been more common to see. I think it might have been more common uh, for like teammates in finals to work together. Uh, I don't know what your take is on that. I don't think that's something like, you know, going into Tokyo where like the American men are going to like sit down and be like, this is what our plan is going to be in the 10, you know? Yeah. Um, it's from what I've observed, it's actually not as uncommon as you no. would think. Um, especially for El Garouge. Um, that guy couch, I don't know how to say yeah, his I'd last name. Butcher Cou- it. Couch. He actually was the lead out guy in both 2001 and 2003 for El Garouge. Um, he did act as a unofficial pace setter um, in those world championship finals in 2001 and 2003 and made the pace hot and El Garouge won both of those races. It's similar in cycling where you have a lead out guy, I guess. Um, I was watching the tour this morning, so a little, little reference there. Yeah, so, so El Garouge has had a lead out guy in the past and it has worked well. I think one of those world championships, El Garouge won in like 328 
which is ridiculous for a world championship final. Um, and that was because he had a unofficial pace setter in his countryman, uh, couch who, who went on to win silver in 2005. So this guy wasn't a slouch. Like he was very good. I guess side note, he did get, uh, banned from the sport in 2007 for doping. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, the, the team tactics are definitely there. Um, if you look back in some races, you'll see it sometimes with there, there are Kenyan groups of three Kenyans that sometimes do it. Ethiopians sometimes do it. You need, you kind of need some, some depth to be able to do it. And they need to be really good in order to actually have influence over a race. So in this case, this guy was really good and could lead out. And, um, from what I've read about the 2004 race, people were surprised that, uh, the couch guy did not lead out for El Garouge and use that same tactic that had worked in, worked in 2001 and 2003 to make the pace hot and then uh, give El Garouge the best chance because El Garouge is the world record holder in the mile, like you said, world record holder in the 15. If the, if the pace is fast, he's run faster than anybody else ever. So it does benefit him rather than sitting around into a tactical race and just kind of uh, leaving more things to chance than having it be fast and eliminate a few more people. So... Uh, yeah, even in 2004, you do see uh, a few of the Kenyans go to the front, and there is the thought that are they going to make a wall? Are they going to try to box in El Garouge? Um, what what is the conversation? And I, I mean, I don't know what the conversation is, but the the team tactics are there. Yeah. No. Okay. Well, then yeah, scratch what I'm saying. I just it was interesting to see. I feel like I do remember a little bit of that, like Kenyans and Ethiopians ganging up trying to stop Mo Farah, or like you know maybe take a pace honest or, or create some sort of barrier, but. At the same time, I just didn't think it was as common or like step one of the announcing, but like to be like, oh yeah, this guy's going to do it. But if what, you know, what you're saying, like that makes total sense. And they would have been shocked that he wasn't up there trying to make the pace hot um, in this third Olympic final that Garouge is running, El Garouge is running uh, and still hasn't won. So yeah, I mean, the pace itself was pretty slow through 200. I don't know. I just know that they uh, started like going a little bit quicker after 200 and then ran like 45 for 300, which is quarter you know 60 second quarters which you know they sped up a little bit to hit that so that first 200 was not that honest or it was not that fast and then you know there's a couple kenyans kind of towards the front of the race and then uh silva the wait is it silva who takes it after like 400 yeah. i believe yeah, so well, he, he or maybe it was the other uh actually no it wasn't silva i think Estevez. it was yeah, Estevez. the other the other, the other iberian guy. peninsula uh, local, because Portugal and Spain are two different countries. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Estevez is in the lead. Uh, Legat's up there on the inside, though, right? Kind of like around that six hundred mark. But the pace is just not very hot uh, at all. They come through eight hundred and two hundred one, I think. Uh, which yeah, is, and two hundred one yeah. for those guys is is slow. slower than a lot I, of I mean, those world finals it, have been for sure. Yeah, it's it's you know two hundred one is fast like. It is, it is fast, but these guys have run, I, I mean, El Garouge had run 326 in the 1500, which is about 55 point for quarters average. So running 60 point is, is quite slow for those guys. I don't know if you have anything about that like portion of the race, but basically once Hikam El Garouge gets, he kind of like jets to the lead right around the 800 meter mark of the race. And the announcers are basically saying he's already left it like too late you know there's a lot of kickers in this race 
uh, a lot of really fast guys who, if you're not going to run basically sub 330, are going to have really realistic shots to, to get it done. Um, I don't know if you know anything background-wise about some of these other characters in the race. Yeah, um, you know, the the weakness of El Garouge at this point, like the, the one thing that people could exploit would be a slow race and then a kick over the last lap or something. Um, obviously, he's the fastest guy in the field in a all-out race um, where you run hard from the gun, um, but things can happen in a tactical race. And El Garouge had lost in a tactical race in 2000. I'm sure the guys in the field thought um, if it's slow, that'd be ideal, and then wind it up and hope El Garouge is boxed in or, or can't really use his full strength, which is running all out from the gun. Um, and El Garouge goes to the front with 800 to go, pretty much on the dot, and it's pretty clear his plan. It, it was go to the front with 800 to go and wind it up slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it strings out of immediately once he goes to the front. I found I found hundred splits actually from the race. So th- his second and last lap, these are the hundred splits. He goes 14-4, 13-5, 13-7, with and that's his second to last lap. Which is a fifty three uh, on the clock on the broadcast at least. I don't know if that adds I up. I believe that's a fifty three. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I guess I, I'm not sure because the the broadcast I think gives a split at the actual 1200, which would be oh, w- which wouldn't be like technically two laps yeah, to go, right, right. Uh, and then a lap okay. to go. Uh, it, he runs about a 53 <laughs> second to last lap, which is which is nasty. Like second to last, <laughs> nobody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think yeah. From I guess it would be 1100 to 1500. That would be his last lap. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, second to last lap is like 53, 54, which is generally what you need to close in to win races for your last lap, not your second to last lap. Um, so has completely strung out this field. Um, the the key players have moved up. Um, one one thing to note is uh, the guy that ends up getting third, uh, Silva, I believe he's in last place with a lap to go. Um, and Silva actually ends up having the fastest final 800 of the entire field, um, which is pretty crazy. I believe... He runs 146.3, and El Garouge and Lagat run something like 146.7, which is the fastest final 800 I've ever heard of uh, besides um, uh, Bile. What year was that? Ooh. Abdi Bile. I think he closed in 146 flat, which is ridiculous. Um, I, like That's absolutely flying. Um, uh, 87. Yeah, anyway. 87. All right, yeah. But yeah, El El Garouge goes to the front and it's clear his intent. Wind it up slowly, just keep your foot on the gas and increase the pace. It was, I think it was pretty clear if anyone was going to try to go around him, they were going to have to run like a 12.100 to try to get around him. And he would try to probably accelerate and try to pull them off. Yeah. I mean, so he, he, he takes it in the front and basically like you say, runs this 53 or 54 point and Honestly, there's not much to describe until the final 100 because he's just in the lead and there's just a tail of guys right behind him. Uh, Lagat is pretty much in second that entire stretch too. So while it's like super enthralling to watch, it also there isn't like a ton going on. Uh, there's a Ukrainian guy in third for a lot of that final lap, but he ends up in fifth off the podium. I love that thing about the Portuguese guy, Roy Silva, 
being in last and running the fastest 800 split. Like it reminds me of Julia Childs, like being almost off the back in the 1500 with like, you know, <laughs> 700 meters to go or whatever. And then just closing it to six. Like it's just like what she was talking about too. I feel like, yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd love to be able to say like, oh, like if Silva had been towards the front of the race, because it's not like it's that, you know, 201 to two flat for those guys isn't that much of a difference. And that would have put him in the front versus the back. Um, maybe that would have been all the difference in the world, but at the same time, it, it rarely is that simple to just put someone in a different spot and say, yeah, okay, now go run the same time. But uh, it's crazy. Him getting bronze is honestly like, I didn't know much about him going to the race, but you just, you watch the whole race, you never expect that he's going to be there. Yeah, yeah, he has a crazy last lap. Um, one thing to mention about Ogaruj's last lap was his fastest 100 was actually the backstretch. His, at least according to the splits that I found, his uh, last lap, his 100 splits are 12-9, 12-8, 13-1, and 13-1. So his his final 200 is actually slower. Um, and, I mean, realistically... <laughs> If you were to run an all-out 800, that is how you run it. You positive split it, and you kind of slow down at the yeah, end. that's true. Um, even though you're you're tying up. So um, he runs it to perfection. Um, his fastest 100 being the backstretch, his second fastest 100 being um, the first corner, and then pretty much even splits the, the final 200 uh, and closes in 146, which is insane. And yeah, he's he's coming off that final curve, and and the crowd is going wild. I think everybody in the stadium knew what was, what was at stake, knew the pressure, um, knew that El Garouge's legacy was on the line here. Um, Lagat had been running lights out over the past couple of years. He was a, a a real challenger, and it honestly looks like Lagat's going to win coming off the final curve. Uh, I don't know about you. Lagat is just. Like, you know he's going by, and he goes by. That That's the the thing that get, takes this race from, like, oh, this is a cool final and, you know, like, the greatest of all time wins to we have to do a recap on this is that final 100. Because Legat go is in front of him with 60 meters to go, with 50 meters to go. Um, and they're just usually in the final straight of a race, usually, like, you can see what's going to happen with 50 to go, you know? Like a, a guy that like, comes up on someone's shoulder and he has more than him and okay, like, he's going to probably take this win or like you see the gap like increasing instead of decreasing or a like, guy's pulling apart. You can usually tell this was one of those examples where like Legat pulls up with them and El Grouge goes again and Legat goes again and they're really just absolutely all out that final hundred. Um, it didn't even look like there was any more surging or rather just like Bernard eventually cracking a little bit more than Hikamo Rouge does. Um, an absolutely just crazy last hundred. And it's, it's interesting with the context you're providing of like that 400 to go and 300 to go hundreds being even quicker because yeah, you're basically dying. You're basically fading into this. And El Garouge was like, I want to have the inside rail with 200 meters to go. I know he won't go around me on the curve. And then it's just a hundred meters to hold him off. And you know, like if anyone wants to be in striking distance at that point, they're going to have to run the race the same way you did because no one's making up a big gap in that last hundred like that. So, yeah, it's it's great strategy. It's really impressive to wind it up and go deeper for that four hundred and three hundred to go uh, than the last two. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what your take is on on that final one hundred, um, which culminates in him narrowly crossing the line in front of Bernard Lagat to win the gold medal. Yeah, it's the, the last hundred is wild. Um, one thing you mentioned 
Yeah, you can usually tell with 50 to go what's going to happen. But in this case, Lagat has passed El Garouge with, I don't know, 50 meters to go and is ahead of him even with 40 meters to go. And El Garouge rallies back and passes him and wins. You you rarely see someone get passed in the final 100 and then pass the person back. Yeah, definitely. Especially when you're running that fast. These guys are obviously pros. They've been here before. They know how to allot their energy properly. If you had the momentum and enough energy to get around someone in the last 100, you're probably going to beat them. Um, it's really hard to, to pass someone back in the last 100. I've been there before. It's, it's really difficult. When, when you feel someone come on your shoulder and you notice they're just edging ahead of you, it's so hard to, to move faster and get past them. You kind of just start muscling it and uh, you end up actually going slower just because you kind of lock up and tense up trying to force the, the, the speed. Um, so Helga Rouge, I don't know how he does it, but he finds another gear, another half gear, something, gets it out of himself and crosses the line in first. And you can tell just how much it means to him. He you know, crosses the line and starts crying uh, immediately. And the camera's right there. You can hear him like sobbing. And it's, it's weird to think, you know, the past two Olympics and now this third one all ended in tears. Uh, and this one finally is like tears of joy. The other two were obviously tears of just disappointment and sadness. And the, the guy is just so, so happy. He cemented his legacy. I'm sure there are a lot of people in his ear telling him that he chokes at the big, the big one and, you know, can never get it done. And, uh, you know, he proved all those people all, wrong. All his boys and, in his ear, I, like, you suck. Come on. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, all his close friends. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's like, that is his legacy. Um, I think even just as much so as the mile world record and the 1500 world record is coming back from so many disappointments. He probably questioned himself so many times, just why, why can't I put it together at the Olympic stage? And then pulls it off in not dominant fashion, but in one of the the most impressive finals I've ever seen. One forty six on the end. That that's wild. And and a quick aside, beating. So actually, let, let's talk about. In addition to the celebration thing, I think what was also the coolest part of the video is watching it. Every single guy in the field comes over to him, like gives him a hug or pats him, or it's just like like more. You know, everyone always is like high five and after races, like. I'm talking like going over to him and like like full on hug like hey man congratulations I, everyone in the field and especially um Bernard and Nagani and 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 the Kenyans who were kind of his fiercest competition are all over there like you deserve this you can you can basically tell it's like a you deserve this one like you got it and um I don't know I just thought that was super cool you rarely see it like guys cry or you know, people cry when they win races you rarely see a like everyone else also appreciating that moment how special um it is to to finally win i thought that was super cool yeah i mean yeah what a way to end your career uh, I, i'm sure everyone in the race respected him as an athlete as a racer yeah. you know to see how much it means to someone you know you can't you can't knock a person like that especially when you know they're they're breaking down in tears at the biggest stage um just just an impressive performance um and and a few days later he comes back and wins the 5k yeah, yeah it, i mean you go from the biggest high of your life the biggest emotional um like 
sense of relief, gratitude, uh, elation to getting back on the line in the 5K, which is stacked, absolutely stacked. And he outsprints Bekele for the win, who, by the way, since we were talking about the greatest of all time, I'd say Bekele is my greatest 5K, 10K guy of all time um, and beats him in the final for another gold. So these golds at the Olympics elude him for seven, eight years, and then he gets two of them right at the end of his career um, and then never competes internationally again after that. That's it. He runs, he runs, I think, in 2005, but he never competes internationally again on the stage that, that he was once at. And it, you know, that, that, how do you cap off a career better than that? Double gold, 15-5. And he was the first guy to do the 15-5 double since, do you know when? I'm not okay. sure. I, I knew it at one point, guys. <laughs> Wait, I got to find the, I got to. He became the first guy to win the 15-5 double since Pavo Nurmi in 1924, which when you have, whenever you start going back to like early 1900 sporting records, it's pretty much the first time it's ever been done in a way, just because like of all of the, you know, amount of global competition increase and just everything that's been happening. Um, the 15-5 double has got to be harder than the 5-10 double. Not, not even like, like to win, to win both. I don't know what you think about that. I mean, okay, more distance in the 10-5 double, but 15 there's rounds and it also just is like i don't know if you get like if you get it i mean okay it really depends on how the races go i don't want to say that as a bold take but if you um (laughs) if you get like a tactical one of them like a 10 or a 5 then maybe it's a little bit easier to handle i think both of them would be ridiculously hard to win both of them but obviously we see it a little bit more frequently uh the 10 5 double than we do the 15 5 double which just seems like a ridiculous like burnout of all your top end speed um in those kind of mid d and distance races what do you think about that yeah i think the 15 5 double is much harder one you just have to go through more rounds you have to go through five races um to do the 15 5 but more so i i think that 5k and 10k fitness are just a little more similar than 1500 and 5k fitness you have to be so sharp to to be able to win the 1500 at the olympic games you have to have the ability, clearly, to run 146 at the end of a race. So that's basically 800 meter gas. Like, like that's the that's the thing. I would say you, you your fitness is more similar in the 5K and 10K, where you come from much more of an aerobic base and can close off of that. But you need more raw speed and sharpening to to do the 15 to five. I'd I'd say yeah, 15 five is harder in my mind. Obviously, the the 510 is incredibly hard too. But you do see people do it a little little more frequently. You see people double, you know, even if they're not winning. You know, you'll see people run the five and the ten. Rarely will you see people even attempt to do a five the 1500 and the 5k, um, and to do it and then come back. And beat Bekele, who's second. I believe Kipchoge was third in the in the five k. Who that that would be my marathon <laughs> to to continue down the line. You know that that games had incredible athletes and incredible talent. Uh, and El Garouche was able to to double and win. And you know if if you listen to this, take the time to watch the last few laps of that that Olympic five k yeah. as well. Super exciting. Everyone knows those three big players i guess actually kipchoge is pretty young at that point kipchoge um, but yeah it's, it's a kipchoge great race had beaten uh Hikama in 2003 in the 5k in paris to win gold that was gonna be my fun fact but you probably would have guessed it now that ah. i knew that but so he had also won uh global gold in the 5k already so yeah he was pretty young 
although he might be like 50 now and no one really knows so he could have been he could have been normal age but um he had already won world championship gold in the five as well so it's not like that was anything light and yeah i mean between like bekele and like oh four bekele in the 5k and um like oh four legat in the 1500 like winning those just it's absurd that's absurd also i need to throw in an aside because until i was like 17 i didn't know bernard legat had ever run for kenya and there's people out there on this podcast right now who are listening to this and are probably younger than me, probably, and did not know that Bernard Legat was not always an American, um, or at least was not only ever competing for America. Uh, and yeah, he competed for Kenya through the 2004 Olympics. Turns out he became a naturalized citizen in March of 2004, which is before the Olympics, and Kenya does not allow dual citizenship. So technically he was in violation of his citizenship of Kenya. Um, and there's in the wiki thing, it's what it says, but like they, but he could keep the medal or something because he still would have been running, I guess, in the games, but technically, cause he didn't, he didn't announce that he had become a citizen until 2005, but it had happened before the games in 2004. So I don't know even what to make of that, but, uh, he definitely, he obviously switched over. He's now made five Olympics, I think had an incredible career, but yeah, he, he, he's second here for Kenya in the, in the 2004-1500. Yeah, uh, kind of a, an odd situation. You usually don't see athletes switch over that are that successful early on. I, I Yeah, I remember there being just some controversy, or, or I, I guess I don't remember this firsthand because I was seven years old, but I, I hear controversy of, you know, should his times from when he was running for Kenya count as American records and American all-times on the all-time list, or... Should they be completely different? And when when do they switch over? Do they switch over when he actually became a citizen, or when he announced he be he became a citizen? Uh, same thing with the the medals. Yeah, do, does does the two thousand four medal count as a Kenyan medal as a U.S. medal? He was competing for Kenya, but technically was a citizen of the U.S. at the time. So kind of uh, yeah, weird stuff. But yeah, from then on, he was competing for the U.S. in an, in an American citizen. Wait, wait, throwing out throwing out a question here. It's okay if you don't know. Are his like did did his like times he ran as a Kenyan when he transferred citizenship become American records? I believe so. Oh wow. Okay, that is controversial. We 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 might want okay, to check we'll, that. We'll one, leave this in I, so I that think so. people can tell us and we'll Google it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that that is that would be kind of crazy. Just just completely off the bat, like in my head, I would think that like once you're eligible to compete in our country's trials and are like. I feel like around that time, not like the trials themselves, just like once you're eligible to be competing in those types of meets, I would say at that point, like your time should start counting towards USA records. But I don't necessarily think that like you're like, if you, like, I don't know, if you transfer to another, like to a random country tomorrow that had a slower 5k record than 1302, I don't think that it should just become 1302 until you like run it for your country. It's just a thought though. I don't, I feel like you want to do it like while you have a little flag next to your name, but obviously this is probably deeper than that. I, I'm not, I'm not trying to like come at anyone right now. I just, that just like would make intuitive sense to me. Yeah. I'm trying to remember exactly what happened with the record. I, I know he ran 327 and there was controversy of whether or not that should be an American record. I, I, yeah, I don't really remember all of this stuff off the top of my head. We'll, we'll have to research this or someone someone DM us and, and set the facts Let's straight. Let's just do a deep dive into Bernard's career because that's been awesome. <laughs> yeah, because he ran 326. I think that was when he was still representing Kenya. And then he ran 327. I, I just can't remember at what year that was. Yeah, 326 in 2001. So I see that. 
Yeah. Okay, this is probably not the best audio. Oh, he ran 327 before the World Championships in uh, 04. He, he, he beat El Garouge in Zurich. Yeah, so I guess it depends on the time. That, yeah, that depends um, on because he was still running for Kenya that summer. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, kind of kind of kind of ambiguous zone right there. I will say with Bernard Lagat, when I was in high school and I was bad at sprinting and also had really terrible form, my coach, when he used to tell me, like, this is what you should try to sprint like, he would show me videos of Bernard Lagat's final 200s and 100s. <laughs> um, obviously, lofty standard. But the important part is, if you're out there and you want to know what it, what it should look like in the last 200 meters of a race, his ability to stay composed and not get all jerky um, and just be like very kind of relaxed up top and just super smooth with it, like that's about as good as you can do it. So just shout out there to yeah. Ruth's. Yeah. Go, ch go check that out for sure. Yeah, I mean, Legat is super smooth. He, I mean, he went on to actually win the 1500 5K double at the World Championships. So not at the Olympic Games, but at the World Championships in 2007. I, I mean, I, I guess to, to further the, the American record debate, the American record is 327, which is Legat. Um, so his 326 didn't count towards it just because that was in 2001. Yeah, I, I just can't remember. I believe he ran the 327, like you said, in 2004. So I can't remember exactly what what the the situation okay, is. Okay, according right? to Wikipedia, his 327.4 from August 2004 in Zurich, the race he beat El Grouge, was not ratified as an American record. Um, but his American records, okay, well, wait, that wouldn't make sense. But it is 327 now, because then maybe it, maybe it does count, because this says that the record was 329, which obviously is maybe Maybe the controversy was that it it didn't count at first, and then later on it was ratified. Okay. But yeah, the the, the American record is 327, and it was from Legat, so it, it must have been that race. Yeah. And he, yeah, he must have run it, and then maybe it wasn't ratified right away, but was later ratified um, afterwards, so... Yeah, I mean, Legat, also, you can look at his career. He's got medals at pretty much every championship for the past, for like a 10-year stretch. Yeah. Um, another guy with insane longevity. Yeah, very, very impressive. But yeah, I mean, those were the type of guys that Elgarouge had to beat and got the job done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just absolutely incredible cap to an incredible career. I think that these championship-style races are probably more interesting to uh, analyze than like the mile world record. But I'm sure a lot of you have seen that video, uh, the mile world record, uh, 343.13. It just looks so fast from the start of the race, Grant. <laughs> just an absolutely great. And there's not much to say about it. Like, oh, yeah, okay, he's following the pacer. Okay, he's running really hard still. You know, it's like if it's a perfectly paced mile, it's not going to be super, like, much to describe. But, man, that it's special. So, clearly just, you know, the GOAT, like an ultra-talented guy. Yeah, some some of the world record videos are worth watching, in my opinion. It, some of the Bekele ones, mm -hmm. some of the uh, Geber Selassie ones, yeah, the Elgar Rouge ones. I mean, this one, yeah, this certainly is too. It's just like to describe it to you on an audio medium probably does not do it justice. So definitely yeah. look at it. But those would be watch on your own. Yeah, watch that's on your some own type stuff. <laughs> yeah, man. All right, that's that's exciting. I'm thinking. I mean, yeah. In summary, let me see if I if I didn't miss anything else. No, yeah. My fun fact is that Kipchoge beat him in 2003. Uh, crazy how many of the guys in this race are still running, right? You said Nick Willis, Bernard Lagat, um, Kipchoge in the 5K is still, you know, doing pretty decent uh, marathon wise. So, 
yeah, just really impressive longevity from that era. Do you, when do you think 343-13 gets broken? Does it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's that's ridiculously fast. The only time that I think people are sharp enough to run that fast would be somewhere like Monaco, and usually they run a fifteen or they always run a fifteen hundred there. Um, in order to break the world record in the mile, I feel like it would have to be a setup like we're going to break the world record in in the mile. Well, what about so he races. also has the fifteen hundred at three twenty six oh oh. People yep. have been getting kind of close. I don't know. At the same time, not really. People people are getting close. Um, I don't know. Those are crazy records to break. I mean, honestly, five years ago, I would have thought that uh, Vicalius records would never be broken, but they've they've been <laughs> broken. So um, maybe maybe it's about time. I mean, those those mile records and 1500 records have stood for a decent amount of time if you look at it. So. Maybe they're due. We'll see. Uh, maybe later this year. Um, I, I would be surprised if the 1500 record is broken at the Olympic Games. Um, I'd be very surprised. But maybe some of those meets afterwards. Um, there's a couple of diamond leagues after the Olympics. So th- they, they could go down then. That era, I mean, also it has to be said, obviously, like even in talking about this recap, there are multiple guys getting popped uh, for, for PEDs, for taking performance enhancers. That... <sighs> I mean, it's hard. It's hard to talk about like the records in that era. <laughs> Obviously, you know. I mean, there, there's there's no. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard. Uh, you know, a lot of people refer to that like '80s, '90s, early 2000s era as the EPO era. Bernard Lagat had to withdraw from 2003, I believe, um, because his A sample came back positive with an EPO reading. And his B sample didn't have EPO in it, so he was cleared. You know, people say things about El Garouge quite a bit, Bekele. I mentioned a few athletes that had tested positive. I believe the Spanish athlete that was in that final uh, was implicated in the huge Spanish bust in, like, 2010. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, to judge too much, but it is something to keep in mind when you look at some of those records, look at some of the things that people were doing. I'm not saying everyone in that field was taking EPO or anything. But it was uh, something that kind of marred and kind of taints that that era a little bit. Um, so I think a lot of people look at some of those races, look at some of those times, and just kind of have a bad taste in their mouth. Like, is that is that really legit? Is that really real? And it's impossible to tell unless someone is actually tested positive. But yeah, it, it, it is important to say. I mean, people literally refer to that era as the EPO era for, for a reason. Um, there were plenty of busts in that time. Um, there was a time where EPO, the test wasn't even that good was the test for EPO was pretty bad. So, um, yeah, people speculate quite a bit. Um, but it's, it's, unfortunately it's part of the sport that drugs have a history in the sport, which is really, really sad. Same in like, same in like how I mentioned, I was watching the tour de France. It was really impressive what all these guys were doing, but you know, the, the sport has a history of people cheating and it's kind of sad. Like it does kind of taint your view a little bit uh, of everything. Probably more extreme in cycling, uh, just with the amount, especially in like the Lance, Ar- Lance Armstrong era. But I got to say that when people watch track and field, they think the same thing. Uh, just, just it, maybe it wasn't quite as widespread, but once there's a reputation around the sport like that, unfortunately for better or not, like, I mean, especially when you're watching like sprints, uh, I mean, and distance running as well, not to like discriminate in that sense, but just like looking at the, like the hundred meter all time list, uh, like all time, all performances, if you don't take out the EPO versus, or like the performance enhancing drug bust versus when you do, it's, it's a crazy different list. Yeah. It's definitely an unfortunate reality of the sport. 
not to end the not to end the pot on that sad note though this race was <laughs> sick and i mean in a way if everyone was doping which not saying everyone was but if everyone was doping then Agreed. still beat everyone in the race but that that's a terrible argument because there's different levels and different things and i doubt everyone's doping um at least you know yeah but bad argument but the the moral of the story is yeah a, a few people that cheat like ruin the sport for the mass vast majority of people that do it the right way i think I, i'm sure there were you know plenty of clean people in that era you know running really well giving it everything they had but unfortunately just one or two people that test positive and kind of break the trust of the fans it it creates suspicion which is really sad yeah. like if you were a clean athlete in that era you're constantly being questioned you're constantly being compared to people that actually cheated um which well, plus sucks. the whole I, like I mean, that's, people that's... who cheat winning medals and not getting caught potentially you know right. yeah there's all this fallout right. from it um but, you know, that's not something you can control or really have to think about that much, I guess, uh, in your situation at least. But as a fan of the sport, it's disappointing. W- one of these yeah. days, though, we're going we're gonna to fund WADA and USADA to the point where they can do their jobs correctly uh, and without needing <laughs> to resort to the tactics that they seem to resort to. And everyone's going to be happy and everyone's going to be clean and it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> it, it'd be ideal. Um, yeah, uh, uh, It'd be great. I mean, I, potential yeah. sponsors it, just go fund water to the point where where things run smoothly <laughs> there. That's that's what I would ask for. Yeah, that'd be great. That that that's where our sponsorship <laughs> dollars should go. It shouldn't be like getting getting any companies in here. It should be everyone just everyone just put money into that, please, and then the sport will have a kind of untainted vibe. That would be very nice. <laughs> I'd love that. Uh, well, and yeah, anything else to wrap up? I mean, on this little episode about the goat uh, of the fifteen hundred, at least El Grish. Yeah, I, I I don't have anything to add. It's a great race. Check it out if you've never seen it. Um, maybe you'll fall down the the YouTube rabbit hole and and find some other races you like. Yeah, if you find the one with the the gladiator soundtrack over that, uh, watch that one. It's pretty funny. I mean, it is a dramatic moment, but it, it's kind of overly dramatic. It's, yeah, it's a little overly dramatic with the music, but I think yeah, check check things out. I think out. like when you get like the the foreign, you know, like the British announcer on the call, and you hear the crowd noise, like and like, of the final kick, and it's like oh, and he's good, like that kind of thing is the most dramatic. Like anything over that, like the gladiator music is overplayed, but like that's all you need for it to be so good. And I mean, maybe it's just because I'm used to it in all sports my entire life at this point, but like like those moments are the most dramatic because there's no music because it's just raw so i don't know yeah i feel like it almost it overworks it a little bit but but still high quality i would i would recommend the classic interpretation of the race um but everyone feel free to go watch your own also next week i'd love to do bring bring your microphone to hawaii uh and japan please <laughs> but uh <laughs> I'd, I'd love to do either a 10k or a 5k uh, or even a marathon yeah. question mark uh just, just a, a longer a longer distance going we wouldn't Ooh. watch the whole marathon but uh, yeah we could do a marathon what's um oh what's the one i'm thinking of the duel in the sun oh I think it's, the boston uh, one salazar and dick beardsley yeah 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 that, that could be a good that one could be a good one yeah we'll, we'll, we'll think of something to do but send us in your suggestions for 510 marathon stuff um i think we're gonna try to hit one of those and uh, yeah you yeah. got anything else we're good that's all, all I right, got. Thanks, guys. Grant will be seeing us next week in Hawaii and then in Japan. Pretty exciting travel trip coming up. 
thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Half Step Pod, and we will catch you next week. Yeah, sounds good. Talk to you guys later. Thank you.